This week, our special guest is former Virginia Attorney General and Acting Deputy Secretary for the Department of Homeland Security, Ken Cuccinelli, to discuss border security, election integrity, and the Ron DeSantis campaign. My name is Kevin Cookagee, and with my good friend Gary Humble, this is the Freedom Matters Podcast. That's Bob Dylan. A plus there. So. Oh man. Um. It's chorus. I don't know, Kevin. When? <laughs> when? When are we? Because <laughs> you, because you would think, you would think we would, we would have by now. I love the second line too. I mean. Listen. Apparently not yet. Kyle Marx has got you by the throat and Henry Kissinger's got you tied up in tonight. <laughs> right? Still relevant today. Still, still today. Written back in 1979. So, Gary, we have a another guest on our Freedom Matters podcast. And and before I give our long... I, I was thinking... So it's Ken Cuccinelli. I'll say that so our guests Can don't I throw my favorite 1979 song in immediately? Pardon Rapper's me? Delight by the Furious Five crew. Hey, all right. Rapper's Come Delight. <laughs> oh, my it. gosh. Hey. That takes me back. Yeah. Hip, hip, hop, and don't stop <laughs> rocking. So that's the voice of Ken Cuccinelli. And um, <laughs> I was going to, I'm going to introduce you, Ken, because what I love about podcasts is unlike a little bit of, you know, when you're on television for three minutes, you get a, a one-sentence bio. But because we're going to have a discussion, a conversation, it's a roundtable, uh, I always think it's important for our audience to get as much of our guests as possible. And I even learned some things about you that I didn't know that I was telling Gary about earlier today. First of all, I didn't know that we refer to you as the Honorable Kenneth T. Ken Cuccinelli II. <laughs> so that was How did new. you not know? <laughs> oh, not that we don't consider you honorable. We wouldn't have you on, of course. But, Ken, the other thing I didn't know, and I was telling my son, who's a mechanical engineering major, that your undergrad was in mechanical engineering. Had no yep. clue. I've always known you as a lawyer, a constitutional lawyer at that, a constitutional scholar. So that's—let um. Let me stop right there for a minute. Why didn't you take the engineering anywhere? I did engineering for a year, but halfway through engineering school, I had realized I wanted to go to law school. So I finished engineering anyway, because it's a great foundation for so many things. And um, I, I only wish I'd done systems engineering because it's a little more flexible, mm -hmm. more dynamic to use mechanical engineering terms. And um, uh, but it has really been a great foundation. One of my jokes about myself, I offered lots of material. So before I went to the dark side, and went to law school, I was an engineer. So and I still think that way. I'm a left brain guy. Um, that's not most of what you get in law school. And mm -hmm. I was amused at how hard people in law school thought it was. And I was like, there are no right answers. What are you worried about <laughs> around here? Also, maybe if I, may the, if I get the number wrong, the bridge falls down. Exactly. You know? Maybe mechanical engineering, too, could also lend itself to like building a wall. 
you know, things ah, like that. And we are going to talk about that because Ken knows a lot about walls and borders. But for our audience who doesn't know Ken Cuccinelli, uh, a lawyer, a lawyer extraordinaire, he also happens to have his master's degree in international commerce and policy. That's from George Mason. By the way, his undergrad was uh, University of Virginia. Ken, I think most people became aware of who you are. I, I know I did when you became attorney general in Virginia. You were actually elected in the fall of, or like January of 09, wasn't it? Or was that 10? Uh, to the attorney general. It was, I was elected November of 09. We have odd year elections in Virginia for our state offices. Before that, you were state senator. But <clears throat> I remember, Ken, you were one time at a Heritage Foundation event and you were one of the first, if not the first uh, attorney and definitely the first attorney general to file against Obamacare. And yeah, that's right. 35 minutes later. I, I, yes. re I remember you saying, literally, you like holding up your complaint and you were ready to go. And as soon as Obamacare was passed, like the next day, you went running to the courthouse and filed that. Yes. Yeah, um, same day, actually. March 23rd, 2010, the 235th anniversary of Patrick Henry's Give Me Liberty or Give Me Death speech, and we filed on the same street. That's awesome. See, that's important to know. In, in response, right, to the bill that, that we were supposed to pass it and then read it later, wasn't that the same? Uh, there were yeah, lots of those. Yeah. That, <laughs> same deal. Yeah, well, the crazy thing about that, of course, that was Pelosi in the House, yeah. is that they couldn't amend it in the Senate because Scott Brown won that Senate election. Oh, that's right. They lost their 60 seats. They literally had to vote it up or down. So the Republicans put in amendments like, this won't cover Viagra for sex offenders. You remember that one? Oh, and all the gosh. Democrats had to vote down those amendments. You're bringing up, you're bringing up memories now. Boy, we could probably go yeah, talk about that. They're flashbacks for me still. <laughs> <laughs> and then, Ken, I think uh, most recently, most people know you. I'm, I'm going to remember you for being the acting deputy secretary of the Department of Homeland Security under Trump. But I noticed you left something out before we get to that. Um, and I don't know if it was on purpose or by accident because you've got this really long, beautiful bio, but I think you and I first met when you were serving um, for a short time as president of Senate Conservatives Fund. Yeah, I led that for five years. So it wasn't was it even really that short. Five years? So from 2014 to 2019. And um, it was the largest conservative Senate PAC in the country. And as you know, Kevin, we, we supported the hard chargers, not the establishment folks. Yep. And um, people like Ted Cruz, Rand Paul, Tom Cotton, uh, and so forth. Yep. So had a really good track record there as an organization. And uh, that was started by Jim DeMint. I can't take credit for yep. that. Uh, the great Jim DeMint. I Amen. wish he was still in the Senate. No kidding. And then uh, from there, of course, to the Trump administration, uh, you were first acting director of w what used to be called INS, right? And then they changed it to United States Citizenship and Immigration Services. Yeah, and INS was more like ICE, CBP, and USCIS combined. It was one immigration organization, which is the way it should be. It's silly to break it into pieces. That doesn't make any sense at all. Unless you don't want them to be effective. Mm. Hmm. We'll get into that, too. Ooh, well, well, I'm curious. When, when did those departments actually become divided in such a way 2003 under george bush <laughs> well oh that's interesting and then ken this is also important for our audience because you've been involved in election integrity so after the trump administration are you still on this 
on this committee, this joint Susan B. Anthony American Principles yeah, I, Project? I chair the Election Transparency Initiative, and we work every day all over the country to improve elections. Uh, we spent two years fighting the Democrats' effort to take them over in D.C. Right. That became unnecessary when the Republicans won the House, um, but that was a close one, mm-hmm. frankly. Yep. yep. And um, But now we deal in each of the states. We've This is the longest-running right-of-center coalition that I've ever seen continue on with as cooperative as it's been including non-conservatives. And um, we've gotten a lot done. About half the states have banned Zuckerbucks, for example, often on a bipartisan basis. Mm -hmm. We've improved voter ID in many places, cleaned up and shortened early voting in places like Georgia, and gotten a lot more transparency to the election processes of a number of states, including even some blue states. So, you know, I'm I'm still going to go down through your bio. So this is an inter- This is a fun way to go through a bio, right? It's like a it's like a back and forth. It's a dialogue. Walk you walk me through your bio, Ken. I'm learning some things. It's good. <laughs> so, but I, I it's important to tell our audience that you are, and I think this has been going on. I think you started what six months ago or so. Founder and director of the Never Back Down Super PAC, which is backing Governor Ron DeSantis in his race for president. Correct. So, yes. So that, is, uh, that seems that to have me from being bored all year. Yeah, that seems to have recently made you famous again. Back, back, kind of, kind of well, in front of the, in front of the infamous, news. depending <laughs> how you look at it. So that's usually the way I roll, though. It's <laughs> that's why we like you, Ken. We've got so much to talk about and and different elements of this that um, I want to unpack. But I want to start here. I want to start by talking about the border because. I'm always told by my friend in D.C. that I need to disclose when I talk about CRA, but um, I'm a board member of Citizens for New America. Um, Ken, are you still a fellow? Yes, I am. Okay. So, Ken, I'm inspired by, and and we've talked about it on this program before, CRA put forth uh, a year and a half ago, I think it was, um, this beautiful framework for a constitutional defense of the border that you, I, you're, you are at least the leader of it, if not the sole drafter, and implementing this constitutional strategy for dealing with border security vis-a-vis declaring an invasion and then being able to address it. And that's really, I want to, I want to start with that, how you came up with so that. By the states. That's Correct. The key yes, element. by the, the border states. states, not the federal government. Right. The assumption being because the federal government is not carrying out its responsibilities. So what can the states do constitutionally? So let's start there. Give us a little backstory about that and um, and where it sits now, being that we have, we know that, for example, that Greg Abbott only talks the words um, of that strategy, but doesn't implement it. Uh, we know that Kerry Lake is not the governor of Arizona, and that would have been the first place where we could have actually implemented this strategy. But where are we in this process? Ex- te- teach our audience constitutionally where it comes from, and, and we'll talk about it. So... If your audience wants to take a look at the very end of Article 1 of the Constitution, literally the last paragraph, Article 1, Section 10, Clause 3, and you most often hear this called the Compacts Clause, and it lists all these things states are not allowed to do unless they have congressional permission. So they can't enter into compacts with one another. They can't sign agreements with foreign powers. And they cannot wage war. 
makes sense, right? The wage war provision has an exception. And the exception is unless a state is actually invaded or an imminent threat of such invasion. Well, the border states are clearly being invaded. And so these states could act on their own. And now we're not talking about, yes, this is a war power, but we're not talking about rolling tanks and flying planes into Mexico and so forth. We're literally just talking about using the war power, the most important part of it being how to deal with prisoners of war. If you're Texas, what this means is people crossing into your state illegally in between legal ports of entry could be stopped at the border by state forces without federal permission. And in fact, in spite of what the federal government may or may not want. The states, remember, created the federal government, not the other way around. And they kept this element of sovereignty to protect themselves, just like you and I can protect ourselves as individuals under the Second Amendment. States kept this power to protect themselves if they were invaded. Now, I don't think they anticipated any way that the federal government might find it to its political advantage to allow states to be invaded. And yet, that is exactly what's going on today. The radical left has got the wheel in the Democrats, in the Democrat Party and in this administration, and they think an open borders policy is a good idea. That's what we're seeing. We're not seeing a mistake at the southern border. We are seeing the implementation of intentional policy by Joe Biden, and the states have power to resist it. So prior to the um, November elections of 2022, I think you got a commitment from Carrie Lake that she agreed with that. And she said, if I become governor, I'm going to enforce that, carry out that strategy. Correct. Can you tell us about some of the other, I forget, so remind me. Attorney General of New Mexico, or was it the Attorney General of Arizona? No, no, the Attorney General of Arizona, Mark Burnovich, issued a legal opinion in the beginning of 2022 uh, saying Arizona is being invaded and that they have this authority. It was the first legal decision anywhere acknowledging this authority. By the way, this is controversial only because the radical left wants to blow the sovereignty of America apart. For the first hundred years after Texas came into the United States and when we gained the southwest portion of America after the Mexican-American War, the states protected their own borders and nobody said boo about it. They've been doing this for 200 years, not 200 years, closing in on 200 years. And uh, so it's only controversial because of our our current politics. Well, I think it's really important, too. I I love what you said about the fact that these this power was reserved as a part of uh, state sovereignty, because, again, as, as a reminder, it was the states that formed the federal government. But just to clarify, you 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 made a statement that those powers exist for the state, even in the case that it would need to be in spite of something that the federal government is doing or not doing, that the the power of the state from that sovereignty perspective, has a a duty that supersedes the federal government to defend itself per this clause. I just think that that little nuance is super important because we don't we don't like to throw that sovereignty word around too much in twenty twenty three. 
No, we don't, but we have a dual sovereign system. We have states and we have federal governments. And just for your listeners, your local government is not a sovereign. Your local government is a creation of your state. The state is the sovereign. And um, there are citizens, states, and the federal government. Those are the three sovereigns in the United States. That's it. But we all have our own realm of authority that the others cannot invade. And the states created all of that. And of course, the Declaration of Independence, you go back, they say why they were doing what they were doing. The Constitution fulfilled much of that. But they elevated the individual. It's why we citizens are believed by America and in America to have our own sovereign rights as individuals. America, one of the things that makes us so unique in history is the individual is elevated above the government, not a servant of the government. You're still a subject of the king in the United Kingdom. That is not, it is reversed in the United States. What about? So tell us, why isn't, for example, Texas? I mean, most people know that Texas is struggles with the same problems that Tennessee does, which is superficially red politically, but yeah. as a matter of execution and implementation, it's quite often, uh, quite often the opposite. <laughs> Not so much. Why do you think Governor Abbott, now he's used the words, in fact, he's strategically used the words, but what isn't he doing, and why do you think he's not carrying forth what he could do to protect his border? Yeah, he has um, described Texas as being invaded for a long time. He cited Article 1, Section 10 as giving him authority to say so, and then he didn't do anything about it. And, um, you know, they wasted so much money, literally billions of dollars for two years in Operation Lone Star. And by the way, you know, it's always the cool names, right? <laughs> Operation Lone Star. It's never Operation, I'm going to stand there and watch these people walk by and not do anything about it. Yeah. Partly because that won't fit on a bumper sticker very well, <laughs> but more likely because it won't look so good in a press release. And I mean, he just ran years of photo ops. Here I am with the cowboys on the border looking tough and, and didn't do squat. How do we know that? The numbers went up, not down. That's how we know. And um, in the last few weeks, really when they were taking Title 42 off, he finally, for the first time, had his forces turn people around. For the first time. And it was pretty earth shattering. It was the end of May. And, um, and what you've noticed, you've probably seen in the news governors who are willing to send National Guard and law enforcement to Texas. Well, that is not a coincidence. <laughs> Many of them had sent these folks before at the beginning of Abbott's tough talk, but they quietly brought them home when they figured out they weren't doing anything, um, that they were just props. Yep. And um, these governors... And by the way, the guardsmen and women and law enforcement yeah. are willing to go to the border for a purpose, but not uh, to be and to spend taxpayer dollars to do it, but and not that to be used as is yeah. to stop the invasion of the United States of America. And when Governor Abbott has done that in the last few weeks, it has been effective. Gosh, <laughs> surprise, if only surprise. someone had told us this might work. <laughs> 
You hit and up. interestingly, to the the only surprise here is that the Biden administration hasn't sued them over it. Yeah. Um, now that's smart. I'm just not used to them doing smart things or <laughs> yeah. refraining from doing dumb things. And yet here we are. So our theory is being proven effective. Mm-hmm. And I say theory, as I said, this was used for a hundred years. Nobody right. batted an eye <clears throat> about it. So it's now some in some parts of Texas being implemented again more toward the Rio Grande Valley than toward, say, the New Mexico end of the state. Um, there's no reason it shouldn't be used everywhere. I don't think there's any hope that three Democrat states in New Mexico, Arizona, and California are going to do this. But that makes it all the more important for Texas to do it, to prove it can be done. Well, you hit a t- in, in discussing that, you hit a topic that I actually wanted to ask you about. And, and I'm wondering, as we're talking, if maybe that was also not part of the reason why Governor Abbott was not executing on these Article One, Section 10 powers for what, I don't know, two years, right, or something like that. During COVID, we used COVID as an excuse to create Title 42. And while we were fighting against the overreach of the federal government, on on the flip side of it, we, we used COVID to secure the border. And perhaps do you see that we—would you say maybe we did that to our detriment? Because while we were using COVID— and Title 42 to secure the border, we actually weren't securing the border. We actually, we were depending upon a false narrative, right, to, to do the work that we really should have been doing to begin with because it needs to be done, not because of so, COVID. So I don't, uh, I don't think so. I think that what people realized sort of in a revert, they backed into it, is that There is so much due process for people who invade our country under the immigration laws. It ties us up in knots. I mean, American citizens accused of committing crimes don't get as much due process, appeals, support, delay as people who invade our country and are not Americans. It's outrageous. And Title 42, because it's so Title 8 is immigration law. Title 42, what we mean when we say this, folks, is it's public health law. So a public health order was imposed on the border that allowed us to turn people around immediately at the border. We didn't even bring them into our facilities. When I was a deputy secretary um, at the end of the last administration, we were returning to Mexico over 90 percent of the illegal border crossers in under two hours on average, Mm. which is an amazing logistical accomplishment but it can be done and it should be done. And we could do it because we weren't all tangled up with the due process. Um, So I don't think we shouldn't have done it. I think we should do it all the time. I also think if we're gonna rely on a public health order that so long as the federal government even recommends refraining from anything or requires a mask or anything to go into any facility anywhere in America, then our border should get the benefit of this public health order that allows us to turn people around instantly. Yeah, I don't disagree with the with the function of what was happening. I'm I'm saying I, I think we need to do it uh, for the nation's security, not because of public health. So I'm, I'm I'm just suggesting perhaps continuing to do what needs to be done at the border for security purposes under the guise of public health. Maybe biting us in the ass is all I'm saying at the end of the day. We, yeah, I, we, we need I, I to be think, doing um, those things. I, I understand where you're coming from. I get it intellectually. 
I think what I've been pleased to see is a lot of Republicans are essentially saying, well, let's keep these processes in place forever. And they're putting in bills that are essentially bypassing all of the due process mess that is built up yes. over 40 years. Right. And um, and I appreciate that. I think that'd be a great outcome. I also think they could use the budget to say, wow, we have this huge backlog. I'll tell you what, anybody in the backlog right now has to leave the country. If you want to maintain your case, you got to leave your country and do it from your home country. Otherwise, your case ends automatically and you lose. I'd like to see that. And it'd clean out our backlog right quick. So how many people, what's the current number of people coming over the border in the last year illegally? Oh, my gosh. Wow. Um, I mean, it's multiple millions, right? Like three million. Yeah. So how I many? It's bigger than a lot of states. I'm sorry. What did we say that's over the last year? Yeah, roughly. Yeah. It's, it's, it's like under, but in the high twos, I think, is what I've seen. Yeah, no, I think that would be right. Yeah, and that's not counting the gotaways. So then, Ken, you and I Those have talked apprehensions. Yes. You and I have talked about this offline, and I know there's not a solution, but I would like to still talk about this. What do interior states do since we don't have the invasion of our border constitutional strategy? What can be done when Tennessee gets? Um, what should a state surrounded by eight other states? Yeah. <laughs> be, yeah. Be no, good. it's 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 pretty straightforward. There are two things. One is implement every single disincentive for illegal immigration. No in-state tuition. Honestly, I would challenge the public education ruling by the Supreme Court in the early '80s by saying we will not give right. Uh, exactly. People who are in this country illegally, any access to our public universities. Nobody's done that yet, but they could do that. Just cut them off. Um, but there's that whole category. Cut off the incentives, the benefits. The other side is what governors like DeSantis and Nome are doing is when Texas finally will defend the border, send personnel to help do it, to be deputized in Texas under their authority and back them up on it. So you actually can get to the border. Of course, some of those would otherwise come to your state, not all of them, but you can participate in that. So what you're saying is a state like Tennessee should not have passed a law that now allows non-citizens to get professional licenses, licenses. in yeah. the state of Tennessee. It's you outrageous. Mean, you mean we shouldn't no, pass laws in the like opposite that? direction? <laughs> outrageous. That was that was last year by the way. We passed that here in Tennessee. It's too bad you guys don't have a Republican legislature. Too bad. I mean, what if, what oh, if, if only we had a supermajority Republican legislature? <laughs> we could fix this. So, so Ken, I have an interesting question for you. And Gary and I talked about this um, when we knew that you were going to come on. I want to, how do you address this? And I mean this sincerely, not to be like sarcastic or to poke fun or to get you in trouble or to get you excited. Well, maybe to get you excited. What do you say to people when they say, okay, Ken Cuccinelli, you're supporting Ron DeSantis for president. You worked in the Trump administration, right? How do you walk that out? How do you explain to people? Um, and that's question number one. Question number two is, what is the response you're getting? Are you being received? Are you having people get upset at you? Or what's, what's that like? So, um, in fact... 
part of the reason I support Ron DeSantis for president is because of the experience I had in the Trump administration. Um, I appreciated the president. He often made good decisions. There was very rarely consistent preparation or consistent follow through. We left so much on the table and he hired so many random people who were against his own agenda. Yes. I mean, Chris Ray, mm -hmm. Mark Milley, Rex Tillerson, John Mattis. If you have his foreign policy, what are you doing hiring John Bolton as the head of your National Security Council? I mean, there's I don't know what he was thinking half the time. I mean, when I first arrived in the Department of Homeland Security, Kevin McElhaney, an anti-Trumper, was the secretary. Um, John Kelly had been. John Kelly had been his chief of staff. I mean, this is an incredibly long list. That doesn't happen in the third largest state, Florida, under Governor Ron DeSantis. Right. And it isn't about the man, whereas with Trump it is. It's about the agenda and accomplishment for the benefit of the people of Florida. And the people of America need that kind of leadership, and we need the principles that he's been leading on so effectively. We haven't seen a chief executive accomplish so much, president or governor, in our lifetimes, period, bar none, either party. And what's amazing about it is in Florida, you have a much smaller you, you don't have the supermajority to the degree we have in Tennessee, right? Ron DeSantis no. has gotten so much more done for conservative causes, for individual liberty in Florida. In a swing state. Yeah. In the largest swing state in America. And he's been a consistent conservative for over 10 years. Uh, he was one of the founders of the Freedom Caucus. There were only nine mm -hmm. to give you an idea of where he's been for his whole career. Before that, he was a prosecutor. He was in the Navy. Harvard Law. That's an interesting little tidbit. Only, so, probably so, the only guy in his Harvard Law class to go into the military. And he paid his way through Yale. He worked his way through Yale. Probably not a lot of Yale classmates that did six different jobs to get through right. paying for college. Um, that's the kind of, you know, work his way up attitude he's brought. And he's brought it to governing. And he follows through. And so look at protecting children in schools. He's literally the platinum standard. Nobody really disputes that unless you oppose his agenda in the first place. They can't stand it because he's so good at it. But he didn't just do K through three. He then extended that to K through six. And as you said, Kevin, with at the time, thin majorities mm -hmm. in Florida. And he didn't just implement it and start firing people who wouldn't implement it. What a great idea, firing people. He then got in while he was running for re-election. He got behind 34 candidates for school board across Florida, 29 of them won, if I remember correctly, and they took a majority even of the Miami-Dade school board. He won Miami-Dade right. by double digits. Yeah, which is this amazing. This guy is a fighter. He follows through. He punches for the back of the head, and he wins, and he brings his whole team with him. And again, the goal – if your goal is protecting children, you don't just have some press conference when you sign the bill. He followed through to make sure it got implemented. And unfortunately, I had too many examples in the Trump administration where that didn't happen. And it was on the president. It was on the president that it didn't happen. And that was personal. 
Uh, so as much as I like him and I appreciate him, I appreciate that he's a fighter. Ron DeSantis is a better fighter. He's a better policy implementer. He's a true philosophical conservative who believes in and respects the Constitution. Very easy to get excited about supporting somebody like that. And for eight years in the presidency, not just four. So what do you think are the biggest challenges for DeSantis now that he's officially launched his campaign? Everybody in America, I mean, it's the worst kept secret in America, right? Everybody knew for the last year or so that Ron DeSantis was going to run. And I think a lot of people hoped that he would because yeah, they I saw did. everything that happened in Florida. What do you think the biggest challenges are for, let's, let's first take it, in the primary season? Yeah. I mean, heck, people in Florida were chanting, two more years, two <laughs> more years. That was on his reelection night, um, which he, you know, he won Florida 60-40. Yeah. It's amazing. In the primary, the biggest challenge is the emotional attachment people have to President Trump. I had to go through that process myself. As I said, I like him. I'm not anti-Trump by any means. Um, but I do know that we can do a lot better. And um, and that is something that is just tough. It's a real right brain thing. It's not a something you logic out and people go, oh, yeah, I see the equation at the bottom of the page. Oh, so I, I should go do that. That just isn't how that happens. And um, it's going to be a gradual process. I will say he is so popular across the spectrum of Republicans. He comes in with an ex with very fertile ground to plow. And uh, because of his incredible accomplishments, literally in every category of legislation that you might want, you pro-life, boom, he's a winner. You 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 worried about centralized currency. He came out against the centralized yes. uh, currency, which, by the way, you know, we near up, which we do appreciate. We talked about that on here a couple of weeks ago. Ron DeSantis is talking about CBDC when no one else is, right? Some people think, yeah. why is that a big issue? Well, Americans who are awake and really alert understand very much how important it is what he has done with regard to yes. kind of fencing off Florida with respect to central bank digital yes. currency. Yeah, which we seem yeah, to be and, doing and, the and opposite. He'll put a stake in it at the federal level as well. And, you know, he's got Florida to its lowest crime level in 50 years. He's the only leader in America, only one, to get rid of a Soros prosecutor. He's the only one, and he's on track to get rid of another one. No, but I thought he was backed by Soros. No, right? <laughs> Did I get that wrong? Yes, from, from the guy who endorsed Paul Ryan. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, you know, it's literally he covers the waterfront on issues, and he's done it all from a conservative perspective and won the respect, admiration, and support of Florida voters who have some who have never voted Republican before. And some who haven't voted Republican in a long time, you got 60% of the Hispanic vote. You got 60% of the overall vote. You just don't do this with a narrow set of achievements. He covered it all. And people, I think, were most impressed by how he led protecting children against woke corporations, against the teachers unions, against the radical left. And he's still doing it and they're still attacking him for it. Trump attacks him for support, you know, for opposing Disney. Um, Trump took Disney's side. Nikki Haley took Disney's side. I don't actually know of another candidate for president on either side who has stood with Governor DeSantis across the board, whether it's the corporations or the schools or what have you, in protecting our children and fighting the cultural battle that is central mm -hmm. to the heart of America, of who we are.
it goes beyond taxes and regulations and everything else, even though he's very good on those. He's got Florida to be the second lowest debt state per capita in the country. Boy, that's something we could use at the federal level. You want to knock down inflation. That's the way to do it. So he just covers the whole waterfront. Nobody else comes close. But getting people to kind of separate emotionally from President Trump is a long, slow, difficult process. To shift to the journal a little bit, I mean, this is all great fodder for the primary, of course. But since you're in the election integrity conversation as well, just share with you a a sentiment uh, from (laughs) from Kevin, who believes that with where we are now with elections across the country, that we most likely will never see a Republican again in the White House. And so, you know, the the Trump-DeSantis conversation is fantastic. But the question remains, you know, when it comes to the general and all of the cheating we face across the country, what what are we looking at right now in terms of election integrity to ensure that the majority of voters who are voting Republican, that those votes are actually counting? Because that's that's, well, that's where the rubber meets the road. And I'll add to that, Gary, completely encapsulated what I what I fear. And that is. If they did it to Trump, it wasn't just about Trump. They've got a machine now that we know in certain key states that they control. It doesn't matter if Ron DeSantis is up a couple million votes in Pennsylvania when we go to bed. They'll stop. What what are we to do to stop to stop them from stopping the the process and do the same thing again to Ron DeSantis? Or how how can you encourage us that this isn't going to happen again? A few things. Um, As we all saw, the legal effort from the Trump campaign was pathetic. It was terrible. It was disappointing. They didn't prepare adequately. They didn't respond well. They they didn't even try, really. And um, that's problem one. And that was a conversation I was having with the president at the time. But um, in Virginia, the Democrats took over Virginia for two years, made like 60 election law changes, you know, it's a Mark Elias wonder. Right. We have a 45 day election in Virginia now. Wow. It's miserable. Wow. And why do they do that? Nobody needs 45 days to vote. They do it to make it hard to provide transparency yeah. and security. Yeah. Well, the reaction of ordinary Virginians to their credit from 2020 was thousands of them stepped forward and got themselves trained to be election officials, not poll watchers, not for the party, to go inside and run the election themselves. The Democrats were freaking out because we literally got like 4,000 more election officials and they were concentrated in the areas of concern in Virginia. And my only Glenn Youngkin quote from when he was running for governor, I don't like these rules, but these are the rules and we need to win by these rules. And their campaigns, his, Winsome, and Jason Miares, did just that. And the influx of Virginians who came in and ran the election, whatever the rules were, we were everywhere. They couldn't do anything without being watched. There were preliminary lawsuits that were successful, which the Trump campaign had never done. And by the way, neither did RNC. And then now fast forward, we've had two years of improvement. Take Zuckerberg's. Half the states have banned Zuckerberg. Half. We've had all sorts of improvements in swing states like Georgia, Arizona. Even, by the way, Pennsylvania got rid of Zuckerberg. It did help to catch their own governor on video illegally voting multiple ballots at a Dropbox to get that done. But, hey, that's on them, right? 
But um, we've seen transparency her- improvements in a number of states as well. And there are only a few states that we've kind of fallen back, Michigan being most notable, uh, backwards. So it is true that there's a lot of laws in place now and procedures to prevent the Zuckerbucks. But isn't the Biden administration kind of doing an end around with that, with how they're putting money into what is the, what's the program they're putting money into, to, quote, get out the vote? And they're basically funding with tax dollars the same thing that Zuckerbucks were doing. They're trying to do that. It, it is awfully hard to do through the federal government because elections are state undertakings. And um, Zuckerbucks was frankly pretty doggone effective at what they were trying to do. And what they were doing was they were sprinkling money everywhere so it looked like a nonprofit, but they actually targeted money to big cities where the voting, they didn't even have to identify voters. You just turn everybody out and they vote 90-10 Democrat. Philadelphia, Detroit, you know, go around the country. We we saw that. And um, uh, cities in Wisconsin. And in a lot of those places, we've made headway. Pennsylvania, those Zuckerbucks are gone. Um, in Wisconsin, the drop boxes are gone. You know, so to rephrase your own concern, Kevin, in 2020, there were plenty of state officials who didn't obey their own laws. So what good is having a law in the books if you don't obey it? Um, but now with so many more election officials from our side, they are there to actually do that. It's a lot harder to have the midnight count stop when you have dozens of your own folks who are in there and don't leave um, the side of the ballots. So and they have the legal right to be there. So we have a long way to go. But we are a lot better off today at the beginning of 2023 heading into 24 than we were in 2020. That's hopeful. Yeah, it definitely gives me hope. And I and I always need to make it clear when I say that I'm the first person to hope that I'm completely wrong. <laughs> right. Right. There were, <laughs> we're not we're not wishing we're not, that not right. wishing right. for that at all. I'm just trying to be I'm trying to analyze it and say, why wouldn't they do the same thing? Um, so, yeah, that does definitely give us some confidence, but it does seem like it's a lot. I, I will ask one follow up. How how do you implement what you did in Virginia? In every state, right, Virginia, not only because you are a Virginian, right, born and raised in Virginia, went to undergrad in Virginia, attorney general in Virginia, you know, the system, you're politically connected, you ran for governor in Virginia. How do you get the same immersion by the the sufficient people in the states where you need that to happen. So you are implying that I should get some credit for what went on. And I, and not, and the answer is not much. What happened in Virginia was a true organic grassroots response to 2020 by people who deserve the credit for saying, I have a concern as a citizen and I'm actually going to do something about it. Now, I wish they'd all done it a year before, right. but 2020 was a wake-up call, and they did. And a bunch of nonprofits, C4s and C3s, all got together to do this because they can, and that has expanded all across the country. It is a model that is being repeated in the last count I saw was 17 other states. So. It is going on in lots of parts of the country, obvious focus on swing states Mm -hmm. for the presidential. And uh, and it's been very successful. I've I've been in Wisconsin. I've been in Arizona. I've been in other states 
participating in the trainings and recruitments for these folks. It is going on quite successfully. Except what happened in Arizona then in November? Didn't we have the same shenanigans in the governor's race? Actually, we had different shenanigans. Um, but still shenanigans. But we still had shenanigans. <laughs> they found um, another way, <laughs> Kevin, you see. Yes. Well, and look, elections at the nuts and bolts level are a little bit complicated. And one of the things that, unfortunately, President Trump has really hurt us on is he's he talked a lot of our own team out of using every tool in the toolbox. Mm. Oh, don't do early voting. Only vote on Election Day. Well, guess what happened in Arizona? The printers ran out of ink on Election Day. Mm. You make yourself susceptible to this stuff. I mean, we'd literally hold the two Senate seats in Georgia today, except President Trump literally talked three times the margin of losing of our own voters into not showing up. He told them their vote absolutely didn't matter. It didn't matter how many of them showed up. And that was not true. And now the Democrats have a majority in the Senate where we should have a majority. We need to use every tool in the toolbox, and we're doing that at the Election Transparency Initiative to get these folks out and voting and to win everywhere. I think that's a worthy that's a worthy statement and conversation to have because look, I'll I'll be the first to say I'm I'm kind of in in general I'm sort of an idealist, and I hate early voting and all the things. But at the same time, and I've I've had this conversation with a few folks that, but if we're going to win, as as long as we are, and you hearken to this earlier. As long as we are following the rules that are in place, if we're not playing by those same rules, we are susceptible to losing. Yeah, I mean, every you're time. going into a fight with one hand behind your back. Yeah, right? yeah. So that's a, that's a great that's a great point. We have to strategize, not not to do things illegally, but but as no. far as far as how the, the rules, rules are allow. set, we need to be playing yeah, by those my, same. My rules. home state allows ballot harvesting until in this year, 2023. The whole House and Senate are up. If we can hold the House and get the Senate, we'll undo that. But until that happens, we need to win with it because they're certainly going to try to do it. It's a great and, point. And, and look, they don't have principles. They're just about power. You want to get rid of early voting? Beat the left at early voting. They will join you yeah. to get rid of early voting. <laughs> yep, exactly. When, when we start winning early voting. That's right. So I, I do have one final question. We're getting a little short on time, but I'm I'm intrigued to know, Ken, who do you think the Democrat nominee is going to be? Um, I am one of those folks who just doesn't think Biden's going to make it. Amen. I agree. Um, by the way, if he is the nominee, I've predicted it elsewhere. I'll say it to you guys. He will not debate Ron DeSantis. Right. He will not do it. It would be the greatest slaughter in the history of presidential debates. Go watch how Ron DeSantis handles pre aggressive press and just imagine the befuddled Joe Biden. It, you can't say the same about Donald Trump. Donald Trump lost a debate to Joe Biden. Go back and watch the first presidential debate. It's if you can get through it, it's so painful because he didn't he didn't prepare. He didn't implement a strategy. He had no self-discipline and, and he actually lost to Joe Biden. Ron DeSantis will never let that happen. So it'd be a slaughter of epic proportions. They'll think of some reason. Oh, he's too mean. He's a racist. We're not debating him. Blah, 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 blah. That's what's coming. But I think there's a real basis to your question. I think um, I was listening actually to Kennedy Jr. on a Joe Rogan podcast mm -hmm. yeah. earlier today. I saw that. 
Um, and I've read his book, The Real Anthony Fauci. Yep. And anybody listening should read it. Yep. Doesn't mean you should vote for him, but you should read the book. It's extremely well sourced. Yep. And um, and it and it's as bad as you thought COVID was. Wait till you read his book yep. and and uh, it's pretty bad. So right now, unless somebody like a Newsom grows a pair and gets in the race, um, I think there's a decent chance that Kennedy Jr. will get there. So you bring up Newsom, whom I, I've told our audience before. Do you know that I actually share something with Gavin Newsom that I'm ashamed? He should be ashamed. Ten fingers. I was born on the exact same day, October 10th, 1967. I found this out to my shock about a year ago, but I get the feeling that he's going to be the nominee, but that there's some movement. Oh, he really wants to be. But what do you think prevents you know, him from getting in? I mean, why doesn't he just jump in? He seems to, it, as bad as he has done for liberty and national security, the left loves him. They think he's, you know, charismatic and he's a hot shot. He's so pretty. Yeah. <laughs> I feel pretty confident he'll jump in there, though. I have to say, I mean, again, I'm not saying I'd, I'd vote for him necessarily, but but I'd love to see RFK at least be an option, you know, on, on the Democratic side. He's in terms of ideologies and all the things we believe in, I mean, at the very least, he's he's the best we could do, I would imagine, you know, on the, on, on the Democratic <laughs> ticket, you know, uh, of the spectrum. So. Yeah, so he is he is he understands the tremendous degree of corporate ownership of our government. Mm -hmm. DeSantis does, too, on our side. Right. Um, you, Trump clearly does not. And by the way. Trump is not anti-establishment. He's unconventional. I'm never crossed Mitch McConnell. One hundred percent agree. Once he never he endorsed Paul Ryan. He never crossed Ryan or or McCarthy ever, ever. Go back and look at his his political endorsements: Mitt Romney, John McCain, Lindsey Graham, all the people the insiders wanted yes. him to support. Look, Ken, and, same thing um, in our state. Yeah. The, the folks that when, whenever Trump sticks his nose in freaking Tennessee state politics always endorses the wrong people. Always. 100% of the time. 100% yeah. of the time. Yep. Yes. Establishment candidates. Always. With the exception of Mark Meadows' congressional district, he literally had a 100% error rate in federal elections before he left the White House. 100%. Unless it wasn't, you know, unless there was no real race at all, hundred percent in competitive federal races. It's honestly my biggest struggle here in Tennessee. I'm, I'm not, I'm, I'm not, I'm not bashing Trump. I am saying it, it boggles my mind how hardcore because I, I'm, I'm fairly, I'm just saying I know Tennessee and and there will be a lot of people in Tennessee that will be happy to vote for DeSantis, but. You know, there, there's a lot of Trump folks here in Tennessee, yeah. but it shocks me at how many grassroots conservatives even that that I know very well cannot see the forest through the trees. They cannot accept every time a, a local candidate that was endorsed by the grassroots because the, the person we knew we wanted to support always has to go against that Trump endorsement. And the moment they have to go up against the Trump endorsement, the money dries up, everything dries up, and we lose. And it happens over and over again. And it but they still but they're only Trump, you know, for the president. But he's killing us <laughs> in state elections. So how do you 
Well, and by the way, you may have noticed that Ron DeSantis has shattered records for state legislators in Iowa endorsing him. I mean, Ted Cruz had 12 and he won Iowa. Before DeSantis got in, he had 37. So how do you think strategically, uh, you, you mentioned this as being the biggest challenge, but how does Ron DeSantis win over the people who are emotional and who say, it, you know, people have for years now have used the phrase never Trumpers. But I get concerned that there are Trump supporters who are going to be never anybody except Trump. And that concerns me in a general. But but really the way in answer to your question for Governor DeSantis is what is happening in Iowa is he's had a couple of great visits there where they're getting to know him. They're learning that he worked his way through college. That's a little different than how Trump went through college. You know, (laughs) he went and served in the military versus, you know, Trump and Biden's experience there. It's the, the contrast when they learn his side. Um, They already have a favorable view and it gets depth and information. It's part of the reason for the depth. And there's a kind of bonding as much as there is with a candidate that goes on. And and that process isn't instant. There's no just add water and it happens. He's going to have to come back. You know, he's going to Nevada this weekend. He's been to New Hampshire and South Carolina in addition to Iowa. Been to Oklahoma last weekend. Governor Stitt endorsed him first governor in. And, um, you know, that's that's a big deal. And um, so he's not just playing in the first four states. He's playing all across the country. And his work ethic is going to come into play here. Trump got in historically early, got in right after the midterms, but he didn't get to Iowa until like March. Well, DeSantis got in and a week later he was in Iowa and a week and a day later he was in New Hampshire and a week and two days later, he was in South Carolina. You get the idea. Yep. Um, he's working it. He's young. He's working hard. He's got a great supportive family. His wife, Casey is a secret weapon. And, um, and, and, you know, y'all get to know her too. I'm sure as you watch them campaigning. Uh, so that, that's how he does it. It is, there's no silver bullet. There's no magic instantaneous, you know, we're Americans, right? We want everything yesterday. <laughs> this is one of those things you're going to have to work your way up the ramp. And he's willing to do it. He's out of the box spectacularly, raised more money in the first 24 hours yes, than any candidate that. in history in either party. Yep. Ever. Bar none. Yeah, I, I, I'm I'm one of the folks that definitely do not consider the uh, Twitter announcement in any way, shape, or form a failure. That, no. whole, that whole conversation is completely ridiculous. That was, that was Elon Musk success. said, Biggest news story on earth today. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. Well, Ken, thank you so much for agreeing to come on to our little podcast here. Uh, It means a lot to me. Uh, Good to see you again, of course, as always. And um, Good to be with you guys. Godspeed, and um, I'm sure we'll be connecting down the road. We've got a lot of of political stuff going on. And in aside to all the national security and liberty issues, we've got a campaign going on. So... We're going to be checking in with you from time to time. Thanks for coming on. Great to meet you. Thanks. If you'd like to learn more about Tennessee Stands, visit TennesseeStands.org to donate, volunteer, or get more information about what we're doing to preserve liberty for the people of Tennessee. 
You can also follow along on all social platforms at Tennessee Stands. As Thomas Paine reminded us, those who expect to reap the blessings of freedom must, like men, undergo the fatigue of supporting it. 